you have your Bibles, you can go to Mark chapter 3. I'm going to start a series this morning entitled Breaking and Living Free. And uh, I'm glad that you're here this morning, but uh, I'm going to encourage you and challenge you to, to invite some friends of yours, family of yours, and uh, have them come, come join this series. If you know anyone that is struggling with bondage in their life, lies, they've believed lies about themselves, and there's controlling things, whatever the case might be, invite them to come and be a part of these services because I believe that God is going to set people free as a result of this series. We're going to go, uh, right now the target is seven weeks. Uh, today I'm, of course, starting the message. Next week I'm going to be uh, preaching on surviving change. The following week I'll probably be preaching on rele releasing offense. Uh, we'll talk about walking in the Spirit, what it means to walk in the Spirit, and how to commit everything to God. How many of you know sometimes that's a challenge, to commit everything to God? And so we're going to take a look at all of those things. So make sure that you come and, and be a part of these services over the next seven weeks. are going to be an incredible time of ministry. I believe God's going to set some people free. And uh, Awesome. Well, I don't know if you've ever done a yard sale before, but uh, we did a yard sale a couple of years ago before we moved. We were moving in New Orleans, and uh, when we, you know, how many of you know when you go through and start collecting all the stuff out of your house, and uh, you start piling and co collecting all the stuff that you got to do for a yard sale, it gets a little overwhelming. And uh, we had that situation. Our guest room was full of stuff, and we start going through, and, you know, friends, we had a whole team of friends come over, help us price things, and that's like the hardest thing ever, is to try to figure out how much am I going to sell this for, because how many of you know, you start going through those items, and you remember, man, I know when I got this, and I paid this much for it, and I've got to, I'm going to sell it for 50 cents, really? <laughs> well, we did that, we went through, we had a, we had a whole ton of stuff, I mean, we, we had a tables, yard, garage, all of it. We had a, we had a sale. Uh, it was all the stuff. I mean, you know, when you get married, everything that you collected when you were single kind of becomes a part of that marriage. <laughs> Good or bad, everything emotionally, everything in the natural, all kind of becomes part of that marriage. And we had a lot of stuff that came along into our marriage, all of our belongings and such that had to be dealt with, and we hadn't dealt with that yet. And so there was a lot of stuff, and then we tried to sell it. People didn't come and get it, and then, you know, we had stuff left over. And then the hard thing is when you get done and you really want to sell all that stuff and you haven't sold it, then you got to put it out by the road and mark free on it. You know, the funniest thing happened when we put free on it. Everybody that had been at our yard sale came back and started rummaging through all of our stuff and fight, literally fighting over our belongings in our front yard. We had every clothes in, in trash bags, and the trash bags were getting ripped apart. Clothes were going... Now, I don't know if that happens here in Ohio, but in New Orleans, we're not quite so dignified. <laughs> and uh, as some of you know, you heard the story when our things got stolen as we were moving here. Some of our belongings got stolen. So some people aren't quite so dignified. And uh, it's challenging when you see your things that you really treasure get marked down and then eventually have to go for free. I'll come back to that in a moment. Uh, you'll understand that in, in a moment. But the other thing that I, that I started thinking about in relationship to this sermon series, uh, these are real handcuffs. And somehow or another, in the process of us moving here, I don't have the key anymore. <laughs> so I'm not going to put them on. 
But these, these are the real deal. These are police issue. These are Smith & Wesson, the real deal. And uh, Jason's fumbling for a key. You got a, you got a handcuff key? That's scary. I don't, I don't want to know why you have a handcuff key. All right, yeah, we'll pray and fast for that one. Um, anyway, if I were to come up to you and put these handcuffs on you and began to drag you around everywhere I went, of course it wouldn't be comfortable, but you're going to be ensnared or in bondage to whatever I lock you to. And in life, a lot of times the value that we place on ourselves incorrectly becomes a handcuff or a bondage that drags us around with that lie. What I mean by that is this, just like in the yard sale, we oftentimes assign values to things so that we can sell them or we put a value placed on uh, other people's perspective. You know, we know that if someone wants to buy this used a piece of furniture, they're not going to pay the full price for it because we paid the full price for it and it's used. And so we're going to have to mark it down. And so we assign a value to that based on other people's perspective. And in Christianity and our lives, we do the same thing. We assign a value to our lives based oftentimes by other people's perspectives and it becomes a lie that we become snared to. And we begin to drag around that lie with us everywhere we go. What does that mean? Well, it looks kind of something like this. We begin to believe lies that, that well, I'm never going to be good enough. Or God, God won't love me if, if I don't do this or that. Or I can't receive from God like somebody else does. I can't receive because, because I'm not good enough. I haven't met the expectation that God has for me. I don't need anyone's help. I'm okay. I've got this figured out. I don't need anybody's help. Anybody ever heard those lies before? Maybe, maybe you've spoken them over yourself before. And so I want to talk today and take a look at how we assign, what, what's, the, what's the value system? What, whose perspective are we using when we assign value or we look at the value of our lives or the purpose of our lives and the mission of our lives? And so in Mark chapter 3, we find very interesting scripture that deals with this specifically. In Mark chapter 3 and verse 13, it says, And Jesus, and he, Jesus, went up on the mountain and called to him those he wanted, he himself wanted. If you're one of those folks like myself that underline things in your Bible and circle and write notes, I would say underline he himself wanted. And they came to him, and then he appointed the twelve that And this phrase would be another one that I would underline, that they might be with him. That he himself wanted and that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and to have power to heal sickness and to cast out demons. I want to take a look at the context of this scripture if we can. First off, Jesus has just healed the man with the withered hand. He had healed the man in church, and the religious leaders were a little messed up about it. They were a little offended with Jesus. You can't be healing the man with the withered hand. And as a matter of fact, in Mark chapter 3, at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, the religious people were already out to kill Jesus. They were already trying to kill him because he healed this man. And so Jesus flees, and he leaves, and he goes to the Sea of Galilee. 
And as he's on his way to the Sea of Galilee, the Bible says a great multitude followed him. In other words, thousands of people were following Jesus to the Sea of Galilee. So much so, so many people, that the Bible says that Jesus had to get into a boat so that he wouldn't be crushed by the crowds. So he gets out on a boat and he, and he sets out a ways and he teaches the people. And then he goes up on the mountain and this is where we pick up the verse. And he went up on the mountain and called to himself those who he wanted. Talk about emotional highs and lows. Jesus had just healed a man with a withered hand. Can, you know, when we see someone's foot get healed, we get excited. But this man's hand would not move out. It would not move. It, it was incapable of doing what it was, its normal function. And so they've seen this supernatural miracle. They've seen thousands of people following Jesus. They're coming to the Sea of Galilee. Following, all of these things are happening. Talk about excitement. And in the middle of all of that, Jesus is getting death threats. There's an attempted assassination. And, and now the people are crushing him because there's so many of them. He's got to get out into the boat. And finally he says, wow, that's enough. Maybe you felt that way in your life. That's enough. I can't do this anymore. I can't keep up with this anymore. And a lot of times what happens in those situations is instead of allowing God to do something supernatural, Jesus here gets away. He goes up on the mountain and, and does something supernatural with these men's lives. And instead, sometimes instead of us allowing for a moment of God to do something supernatural, we throw the towel in and say, God, I can't keep doing this. You said you were going to do this and this and this, and now I'm, I, I have attempted assassination? What? This isn't what I thought was going to be ministry, Jesus. I didn't know I, didn't know I was going to have my life, uh, have someone try to take my life following you. Have you ever felt that way before? Don't look at me like you never, you don't know what I'm talking about. Of course, we all have. We've all had those moments where we've said, God, I don't know if I can keep doing this. I don't understand this situation. And instead of trusting God, we begin to believe a lie. Instead of trusting him, instead of putting our faith in him, we begin to believe the lie that the enemy starts to weed into our, into our minds. And we start to think, well, I, you're right. I can't do this. I could never do this. I could never be good enough. I'll never accomplish anything. And then we start to live a life based on that lie. Maybe for you that lie started when you were young and maybe it was something your parents said to you. Maybe, maybe your parents told you you would never be good enough or maybe it's a coworker or whatever the case is. Today, I believe that God wants to set you free from the lies that have held you captive. Today, I believe that God, in a moment of time, can come in and unlock those handcuffs that have held you captive and allow you to walk free. The first thing that we see here in, in, this, in this verse in Mark chapter 3 is that my value is determined by this word that I use, imputed desirability. My value is determined not based on who I am or the skills that I have or the talents I possess. My value and my worth is based on what Christ has done in me. My value is based on what Christ has placed on me. My value is not placed on myself alone, but it's because of who Christ is in my life. The Bible says in Mark chapter 3 that he called to himself those he wanted. He called to himself those himself, those he wanted. He called them in and he appointed them. 
I went through and found some statistics about our current culture. 85% of the world's population are affected by low self-esteem. In a study of female students, and I think these are on the notes and they'll put them on the screen for you. In a a study of female students, 80% of them claimed their negative body image was linked to the negative remarks of friends and family. In other words, that their low self-esteem was linked to what their friends and family were telling them. Seven in 10 females believe they are not good enough or do not measure up in some way, including their looks, performance in school, and relationships with friends and family. 43% of men are dissatisfied with their bodies and 17% of men have eating disorders related to self-image. There is a rampant problem in our society related to self-image. And this is the issue, is that people don't understand what Jesus says about them. Even in church, people don't understand what the Word of God says about who we are. We don't understand what the Word of God says about who we are. This is what the Bible says in Romans 8, 29 through 30. It says, For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of a son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. Jesus knew you before you even knew you. Jesus knew the plans that he had for your life. He said to Jeremiah in Jeremiah 1.5, Jeremiah, before I formed you in your mother's womb, I knew you and I sanctified you. I set you apart. I ordained you as a prophet to the nations. Here's Jeremiah, young, young man who feels like he's hopeless, has, has, has uh, no skill, no ability to speak to the nation of Israel. And God says, don't worry about that, Jeremiah. I got you covered. Before you were even formed, I knew you. Before you were even born, before you were even conceived, God had a plan and a purpose for your life. And, and he says in verse 7, Jeremiah 1-7, But the Lord said to me, Do not say I am a youth, for you shall go to all whom I send you, and whatever I command you, you shall speak. Do not be afraid of their faces, for I am with you to deliver you, says the Lord. Of course, there's Esther. We all know the story of Esther. In Esther chapter 4, Mordecai says to Esther, don't think in your heart that you will escape in the king's palace any more than all the other Jews. For if you remain completely silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. Yet who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. What is it that God has placed in your heart today? What, what, it, what, what is God working in and through your life? And would you find yourself saying, God, I'm not capable of doing that. I don't have the skills. I don't have the abilities. And you're probably right. You probably don't have all the talent that it takes. And you probably don't have all the skills that it takes. But God says, don't be afraid of them. If you don't step up, Esther, deliverance will come from someone else. Why? Because it's God working in you. Your value is not based on what you do. It's based on who God is in your life. A lot of times we begin to find our worth in what we do. A lot of times as Christians, it's about if I sing the right song or what happens behind my instrument or if I teach a class or if I do X, Y, Z, then I'm okay. I've got God's approval because I've done something. No, that's not how God operates. God loves you just because he created you. God loves you because he sees the image of his son that's been implanted over your ugly face. (laughs) 
Yes, you are filthy, ugly, vile, nasty, everything, reprobate. Now, you're right in saying you have nothing to offer. In and of yourself, that is true. You have nothing to offer. You are filthy, ugly, nasty. Isn't this a great message this morning? You're going to leave feeling like you're on the top of the world. This is, this is your best life now. You're going to leave feeling like you're great. You are full of everything vile. That's what the Bible says, that, our, that the heart of man is wicked, full of everything vile. But when God comes and he redeems our lives out of the pit, it's no longer about our nastiness and our ugliness. God begins to transform us and set us free, and we take on the image of Christ. Amen. In 1 Samuel, we find the story of David. I love the story of David. David's a shepherd, young, not afraid of anything, going to run right out to the battle. He's not the, not the one that his father would choose. Talk about, talk about some emotional baggage. Your, your dad brings everybody else in to see the prophet Samuel but you. Does that tell you kind of the emotional baggage that David might be dealing with? Rejected from his dad and the lies that might come along with that. And this is what the Bible says in verse 11 of 1 Samuel 16. And Samuel said to Jesse, are, are all the young men here? And then he said, there remains yet the youngest, and he's out keeping the sheep. He's a nobody. He's a shepherd. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and bring him, for we will not sit down until he comes. And I believe that that is a word for somebody here today, is that you may feel like you're the cast out, you're the nobody, you're out tending to the sheep, and nobody knows. But God said through this prophet, he said, we're not going to sit until he gets here. And I would say to you today that God is standing, waiting for you to step in and realize the value that he's placed on your life, that you're his child. Doesn't matter what everybody else thinks. Probably doesn't even matter what you think about yourself. Because God is standing and saying, I'm not going to sit until he comes. I'm not going to sit down until he steps into why he was called. I, I'm not going to sit until he steps in and realizes why I made him. It had nothing to do, had nothing to do about David being the king. Had everything to do with David realizing who he was in God. Had everything to do with David realizing, man, I'm not just some shepherd throwaway kid. I'm not the youngest of my family. I've been called by God. God's called you today. And the Bible says here that in verse 12, so he sent him and brought him in, and he was ruddy with bright eyes and good looking, and the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is the one. When you realize who you are in God, and you begin to step in and understand your value because of who God is in you, you begin to step into the authority and the anointing of Christ on your life. What happens when you begin to believe the lie that you're a nobody, that you're a no good, that you could never do it? You're bound to a lie. You're bound to, the, you're bound to that lie, and that lie follows you everywhere you go. But when you get a revelation of who you are in Christ, 
that lie begins to break open and you begin to see, wow, I can step into the anointing of heaven. Uh, Jesus, Jesus died for me. It's his value. It's who he is in my life. It's his glory in my life. And you begin to walk in the fullness of his glory for your life. Amen. He's making you into his image. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, But we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. In other words, who are you watching today? Who are you beholding? Who are you watching? That word behold is to gaze upon. David used it in Psalms 27. One thing have I desired, that I might dwell in the house of the Lord and behold. He said, I want to behold the beauty of the Lord. What are you watching? What you behold is what you become. And so if you keep looking at your lies and if you keep watching your filthy, ugly self and you keep your eyes on your situation, guess what you're going to become? But if you begin to focus your eyes on Jesus, you begin to set your eyes on him, and you begin to behold him, stop looking at your mess, stop looking at your situation, stop looking at who you are and what you're not, and begin to behold the beauty of the Lord. Begin to behold the glory of the Lord, and he'll transform you from glory to glory. Secondly, my purpose is to be with him. The Bible says in Mark 3 that he had called them to himself, he appointed them that they might be with him. Your purpose today is solely to be with Jesus. It's not to do, it's to be. I'll say that again. Your purpose is to be, not to do. The Message Bible in John 15 says this, live in me, Make your home in me just as I do in you. In the same way that a branch can't bear grapes by itself, but only being joined to the vine, you can't bear fruit unless you are joined with me. I am the vine, you are the branches. When you're joined with me and I with you, the relation intimate and organic, the harvest is sure to be abundant. I'll say that again. When you're joined with me and I with you, the relation intimate and organic, the harvest is sure to be abundant. Separated, you can't produce a thing. Anyone who separates from me is dead wood gathered up and thrown on the bonfire. You know, how many of you are familiar with the book Purpose Driven Life? That book is, in, it is the second most printed book ever outside of the Bible. It's the number, Bible's number one, Purpose Driven Life is number two. Why is that? Now I'm not making a promo and endorsement for Purpose Driven Life and all that. But what I'm saying is this, people want to know their purpose. People are desperate to understand what their purpose is. And I would say this, our purpose found here in Mark 3, is solely to be with him. And when you abide, as John 15 says, when you begin to abide in Christ and you, you begin to live, as the Message Bible says, this organic relationship, this natural relationship with him, out of that relationship flows the doing. When you get touched by God and his presence begins to flow into your life, you can't help but do. There is an overflow that comes out of your life. You have to tell others about the love you've experienced. Love isn't complete until it's shared. And so when you experience that love, you've got to share it with somebody. There's a natural overflow that happens because of an encounter with God. But our purpose is not the doing, it's the being. It's coming into his presence and worshiping him and enjoying him. My 
existence is to worship him, glorify God, and enjoy him forever. And when you begin to do that, all of the other things begin to make a little bit more sense. Have you ever found yourself getting frustrated with things in life saying, man, if I could only do this, if I could only get breakthrough in this area, if I could only just, and, and have you ever been in those situations? I was talking with Jim the other day, and he's, there was a situation he was dealing with, and, and he said, man, I, I've been looking for a breakthrough in this situation. I needed a breakthrough in this particular business situation, and I, I just didn't have a solution to it. And he said, I began to pray, and God downloaded a solution. And you know what? That's how you and I get the, the doing done is by figuring out our purpose first. That's how the doing gets done is by figuring out our purpose first. Whatever it is that God's called you to do is secondary to spending time in his presence. When you, when you begin to spend time in his presence, you begin to worship him and yield to him, surrender to him and enjoy him then the glorifying him becomes a natural outflow of that experience. The dilemma I find sometimes is this, is that we don't understand the work of God in us. When you and I are born again, we're justified by faith. And uh, hopefully they'll put it up. I don't know if, if the computer's having trouble today. But when we're justified, what justification is, is this. You and I are guilty as charged. We're sinners and we're guilty as charged. But Jesus steps in and he says, I declare you justified. It's a legal document. He signs in blood that you are guilty, but I am removing the consequence of that sin. And so when you and I are born again, we are declared, the Bible says in Romans 3, but now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe, for there is no difference. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely. We're justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And so Christ comes, and when we get born again, we're declared justified. Now, that still means that we have our nasty carnal nature to deal with doesn't remove the fact that we have our, our soulish man, our mind, our will, and emotions that all have to be sanctified. That's another Bible term. We all have to be sanctified. And so we're declared justified in a, me, in a moment. Immediately we're declared justified when we accept Christ. But there is a lifelong process of discipleship that happens in you and I's life, and it's called sanctification. I was talking to someone this week, and, and maybe this fits you. I don't understand, Pastor Zach. I, I love worshiping the Lord, but the same mouth that I'm worshiping God with at work, I'm cursing and using profanity. And I, I feel like I'm, I'm a, a horrible Christian because here I am supposed to be glorifying God in my mouth, but I'm doing something different. And I said, no worries. The Holy Spirit can solve that problem for you. It's called sanctification. There is a process that you and I go through. Now, that's no excuse for us to live in sin, Absolutely not. Grace transforms us. Grace is the, is the charisma. It's the power of God that comes and transforms our life. But with that transforming work, sometimes we don't go from being born again in a moment, living maybe in the bar or a perverse life or in bondage, and all of a sudden you look and smell like a, a Christian that's been born again for years. Y'all hear what I'm saying? There's a process that you need to go through. There's a process of sanctification with your 
your soulish man is your mind, your will, and emotions. And so your mind, maybe your, your, your thoughts captivate you and keep you in a place of bondage. You begin to think about the lies. You begin to think about the hurt. Your, your mind is stayed on your circumstance, your situation, maybe who you were or what you did. Your mind's got to be renewed by the Word of God. There's, there's nothing wrong with saying, I have a problem, but don't live there. Don't camp out in, in, the, in the lies of your mind. Begin to renew your mind in the Word of God. Your, your emotions. Your emotions were created by God. You have emotions because God made you with emotions. God has emotions. You were created with emotions in God's image. Your emotions are to glorify Him. But how many times you know we get stuck emoting instead of having emotions that glorify God? Well, I'm going to give that person a piece of my mind. If they knew who they were messing with, man, I'm going to tell them what for. And we, we start to get in a place of emoting versus glorifying God. And so our emotions have to be transformed through this process of sanctification. Our, and, and then, of course, our will, our desires. You know, I used to think the verse in Psalms that says, God will give you the desires of your heart. I used to think that that meant that whatever I wanted, God was going to give me. Maybe some in this room think the same still. That's not what that means. What it means is this, is that if you delight yourself in God, he will give you desires in your heart. He will place desires in your heart. All of a sudden, you start having his desires. And so if you find that your will doesn't line up with the word of God, you need to delight yourself in the Lord a little bit more and allow him to transform your desires. It's a process of sanctification. Hebrews 10, 14 says, For by one offering he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. When I am secure in my justification, I have the freedom to cooperate with God in my sanctification. When I understand that I am justified by faith through grace according to Jesus' finishing work on the cross, when I understand that I am justified by what Christ has done in my life, then I can say, God, I know you're not out to hurt me and you're not out to harm me. I know that you're sanctifying even though it may be uncomfortable. How many of you know when God starts poking on the issues of our heart, sometimes it's a little uncomfortable. God says, okay, you need to let down the wall, let me in. That can be uncomfortable. When God says you need to forgive and you don't want to, it can be a little uncomfortable. When God starts dealing with your mind and your will and emotions, it can be a little uncomfortable. It's okay to admit that. But this, God's not out to hurt you. He's out to make you look more like him. So when you're dealing with these issues in your heart, in your life, don't run. We've had a lot of folks recently say, man, the, the presence of God is so awesome in this church. This Pentecostal experience is real. It's alive in my life. But man, all of a sudden, all these things in my heart start coming to the surface. I don't understand. I, I feel like I'm going through, through the fire. I'm going through testing. Well, guess what? When you get in the presence of God, that's what happens. He wants you to look like him. You start getting into his presence, and he wants to transform you. He wants you to begin to take on his nature. And guess what's going to happen? He's going to bring up all of those issues. It's not to hurt you. It's not to harm you. It's because you're in his presence, and he wants you to take on his nature. It's motivated by love. 
It's the same thing. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Why? How could a loving father? How could a loving father? I don't know if I could ever allow Zoe to be killed. That would just not, not even on my radar. That's not going to happen. They would, have to, they would have to go through my guns and knives. And I mean, we would have to go through some major fighting if somebody wanted to touch Zoe. Yes, I have a couple of guns. But this message is not about gun laws. I, I, I'm in Ohio, so I know y'all are supportive, so I don't have to worry about that. When I, when I, uh, when I, uh, when I first got here, someone asked me if I believed in conceal and carry, so I, I knew I was in a good place. But anyway, I'll, I, I digress. I digress. Anyhow. I forgot where I was going with that. I totally got off track. Oh, Zoe. I don't know if anybody would, if I could allow anybody to touch Zoe. But here's the, the, the love of the Father. He loves you and I so much and loves his son so much. Sometimes we think that, that God just all of a sudden rejected his son because he allowed him to be crucified. No, no. That was the love of the Father because there, there was a promise attached to that death and resurrection. There was a promise attached to that, Jesus, if you'll go and lay down your life, there was a promise of the Father attached to that. There was, it wasn't a place of, of hatred or rejection. It was a place God was motivated by love for you and I. And in the same is true for you and I, is that there is a promise of the Father on the other side of every, of every turmoil, every, every trial, every situation that you face, everything that God allows in your life to cause you to look more and more like him. James says in James 1, count it all joy, my brethren, when you face trials of various kinds. What does that mean? It means command yourself to be in a place of joy. Why? Because there is a desired outcome. If you continue to read in James 1, it's it says that, the, that there might be the perfecting of your faith. There is a desired outcome through every trial that you face, and it's to look more like Christ, to command yourself to be in a place of joy. God, I don't understand this. I don't understand why she did that or he did that or why this situation is the way that it is. I don't understand all the, I don't get it. But I know that you are wanting me to be in a place of intentional intimacy. You've called me to be, to be with you. That's why I exist. And so I'm going to command myself to be in a place of joy because I get to be with you. I get to be with you. Whether the situation goes my way or not, I get to be with you. Whether I see the deliverance come in the time that I want, I get to be with you. And the harder the situation, the more time you need to spend with him. It doesn't mean the situation will change, but your perspective begins to change. It doesn't mean that the person begins to change, but it means that your heart begins to be transformed. In his presence, he begins to transform you and I. And then thirdly, my mission is a supernatural commission. He sent them out. In Mark 3, it says that he sent them out. He gave them power and sent them out to heal sickness and to cast out demons and to preach. In Matthew 10, verse 7 and 8, it says, And as you go, preach, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick. Cleanse the lepers. Raise the dead. Cast out demons. Freely you have received. Freely give. And so we see here that the, that the ability 
to have supernatural ministry flowing through our lives is first connected to our ability to receive. If you've not received anything, you can't give anything. And so we have to receive from heaven. And how does that happen? Well, we just talked about that, intentional intimacy. We come into his presence. We spend time with him. We're created to be with him. And when you are with him, there is a natural outflow that comes in your life. Freely you've received, freely give. Secondly, Acts chapter 1 verse 8 says, But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses. I want to focus on that. You shall be witnesses. It doesn't say you will be made into a witness. It says you will be witness. You will be witness. It's, it's a natural part of our lives that, that we don't have to try to make something happen. Witnesses are people that have experienced something and they testify about what they've experienced. And so our ability to be a witness is directly related to our experience. And so if your experience is minimal, your witness will be minimal. But the greater the experience with God, the greater the witness. But you shall receive power. And notice this is connected to receiving the power of the Holy Spirit. The disciples were going out ministering. They were, doing, they were seeing supernatural things happen prior to Jesus being crucified. But there was an emphasis that was made in Acts 1 by Jesus that you shall receive power. Don't leave in Luke, the end of Luke, Luke 24. Don't leave Jerusalem until you receive the promise of the Father. And then right as Jesus is getting ready to ascend, he says, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. There is an emphasis by Jesus. Not Pastor Zach, not Pastor Heather. There is an emphasis by Jesus on receiving the power of the Holy Spirit. In the New Testament, there is very little distinction between born again and receiving the power of the Holy Spirit. That was a, that was a natural question. We see it throughout Scripture, a natural question. Once they got born again, have you received? There was two distinct experiences, and they were always linked. We see the very clear throughout Scripture. There was no distinction. Today in our culture, we've, we've created different camps. Well, you're the Pentecostal camp, and you're the Baptist camp, and you're the not even non-denominational has a camp these days. Every, everybody has a camp. That's not what the New Testament was. Are you born again? Have you received the Holy Spirit since you believed? Jesus made the emphasis. Matthew 28. Don't get mad. I'm setting you free this morning. I'm giving you truth. Matthew 28, verse 18, says, And Jesus came and he spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore. Sometimes we isolate these scriptures from go therefore, the previous verse. Go therefore, go why? Therefore, verse 18, Jesus said, All authority has been given to me. Therefore, go. Might be a better way to say that. All authority has been given to me. Therefore, you go. In other words, there was a transference of Christ's authority to his disciples. He said, I am sending you as my witness. I am sending you out to do these things. Making disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I've commanded you. And lo, I am with you always. Now, again, we isolate this verse a lot of times. Lo, I'm with you always. And we say, oh, God's going to be with me everything, everywhere I go, everything I do, God's going to be with me. And that's not true. 
His omnipresence, yes, he, he, is with, he is everywhere, but that doesn't necessarily mean that God's going to go with you when you're sitting in the bar doing the things that you know aren't glorifying God, and all of a sudden you're doing the things that you shouldn't be doing, and you get yourself in a mess, and then we say, oh, where's God in all this? Well, I went to the store and I, I charged up a bunch of debt and now I'm in debt. And I, where's God in all this? Well, the condition here is this. He says, I am with you always preceded. The promise has got a press, uh, uh, the premise here. There's a, the promise has got a uh, uh, condition. Go therefore and I'm with you always. If you and I are about the work of God, if we are in a place of, of being with him, if you and I are with him, we recognize our value based on who he is, and we are with him. We can come boldly before the throne because of who he is. We are with him. Out of that experience as a natural outflow of ministry, we go, and when we go, he's with us. But we can't expect God to all of a sudden clean up our mess because we're not with him. I'll say that again. We can't all of a sudden expect God to clean up our mess because we're not spending time with him. Out of spending time with him flows the going. So we go because of his authority and he is with us when we fulfill his commission. I want to close with this quote. I used this um, last week, I think, in one of, uh, one of the meetings I did. And it's a C.S. Lewis quote, and I love this. It's, and I don't know if they have it. I sent it to him. I don't know if they got it in time, but... It says this, if we consider the unblushing promises of, of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. You and I, it's not that, it's not that pleasure, it's not that en enjoyment is wrong. God wants us to enjoy him. Our pleasures, we, we become too easily satisfied with trying to find our identity, find who we are, our purpose, our mission, all these things, and what we do in this life. We're far too easily pleased. But there is a greater call of God. There's a greater, greater promise of passion and enjoyment found in his presence. You and I were created. We were formed to enjoy God and to glorify him. You and I were created to come boldly into his presence. If you go back to the garden, that's why they were created, was to be able to live in, in fellowship and communion with the Father. And we've allowed the trappings of this life to entertain us. Are they all bad? No, not necessarily. Playing golf and, and playing the guitar and all those things, whatever it is that you do, it's not necessarily bad. But when you enjoy God, it makes those things so much better. Yeah. It's no longer about playing the golf per se. It's about enjoying God through the golf. It's no longer about doing whatever it is that you do. You find it as an opportunity to enjoy God versus enjoying just an activity. Relationships, friendships, all of it. It becomes God-centered versus what do I get out of this? 
How do I get, how do, how do you scratch my back and I scratch yours? No, no, it's no longer about that anymore. It's about how do I enjoy God through this? So I want to encourage you today that if you find yourself bound up with these handcuffs, if you find yourself ensnared to a lie today, a lot of times, like I said, I start off by saying our value and things that we believe are about ourselves are not scriptural. It's based on the perception of others and, and sometimes our own offense, which I'll, I'll teach on offense in a couple of weeks. But those, those lies and those offenses become filters through which we see everything else. We see the world. All of a sudden, instead of loving our spouse, we see the offense. Instead of loving our, our co-workers, we see the offense. Instead of, instead of loving ourselves and, and seeing ourselves as God sees us, we see the lie, all the lies. And I believe that God wants to liberate you from lies today. God wants to set you free from the perspectives of this world and give you a heavenly perspective.